Welcome to Healthcare Crossroads, a podcast showcasing the connections we make in healthcare data, compliance, and patient care. We are at a crossroads in healthcare. Let's make an impact by bringing together physicians, nurses, healthcare information management professionals, and legal experts in healthcare. Everyone in healthcare intersects. Let's find out how. This is Healthcare Crossroads. Here is your host, Jennifer McNamara. Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Crossroads podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host. We are here as always to bring you the connections that we see in data, compliance, and patient care. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for continuing to make this podcast possible. We get to come back every episode and bring you these industry insights. So thank you to our listeners as well for coming back and listening to us. As part of the initiatives at OncoSpark, we've assembled, as you know, an amazing advisory team with Spark Advisory Network. Today, we get to continue our series on unraveling evaluation and management. It's part two of the series today. In this episode, we are joined once again by our advisors, Terry Fletcher, Sanal Patel, and Christine Hall, in an effort to break down and unravel the nuances that we see with EM services. As we know, since 2021, we've all been working so hard trying to cooperate with our physician groups and help unravel these nuances that we see. The second piece uh, that we're going to talk about today is really what I feel, uh, maybe many of you feel the same, is the core of the medical decision-making process. What really bridges the gap between that element of evaluation and management, what we call medical necessity, right? It really makes or breaks that element there. We see that evaluation management services are exactly that, evaluation and then management. To really get back to the core of why this part of the E&M services was instituted. And we can go back even to the days of the 95-97 guidelines, which wasn't too far uh, in the past for us, and really dig deeper and understand maybe what how we got here, right, to where we're just looking at MDM. And really why it should have been, maybe in my opinion, the the cornerstone of leveling the service in the beginning to really get down to the root of that risk to the patient that really should be the driving force. So we're going to talk about that today, of course. And if you've been in the industry long enough, you can attest to the fact we have seen this progression, the evolving of the industry in the way that we receive information, right, and the way we transmit information. Most of us can remember a time when we went from paper charts, right, to those electronic medical records, those EMR systems, and we remember the challenges that we received, uh, we encountered, that were created by the system. It required that we take that extra step on top of just reviewing documentation, because before we could just look at the paper chart, we either could read it or we couldn't, right? We'd have to go to the provider, can you clarify this for me, can you update this, because this is not legible, right? So they made notations, right? There was ways that they edited those paper charts to make them legible and accurate. So on top of just that element, right? Now we have to get through all these loopholes that we we see people trying to go through, trying to use this copy and paste function, trying to make things more efficient, right? And speed up the process. But in reality, what's happening is we're having some really big hurdles, compliance issues, really not understanding if we have accurate documentation. Did this really happen? Or was this maybe added, uh, maybe from a previous note? And are we catching those things, right? There are checks and balances in place. A lot of EMR systems have the ability to check and have a trail of events, right? 
I can kind of see how all of this happened. Um, they have timestamps and they have ways to check who did what. So are we checking those things? Are we making sure the data we get in these systems is accurate? So on top of those issues, we have this to deal with, right? And so getting back to just the documentation, how do we make sure that we can make it as accurate as possible and make sure it's understandable that it not only gets us paid, but also it makes sense for patient care, right? So let's talk about these issues. And you're gonna hear our advisors today talk many times about the fact this is face-to-face -face encounters for that given data service, right? You're gonna hear us talk about what is true today, as my friend Christine always says, and at that encounter, that current encounter, right? That is how these services are reimbursed based on those face-to-face -face services. So we see therein lies the essence of our issues in documentation and reimbursement. We have our physicians. We know they think clinically. And of course, they should be thinking that way and continue to think that way as physicians. Then we have the business teams. They have to think in a financial world, right? They have to think financial. And as coders, you are in the middle, so to speak, because you are the middle person between having that clinical knowledge and having conversations with your physicians. You have to understand some clinical terms to be able to converse with your physicians, right? And then you have to be able to translate or you have to make that clinical side meet up with the business side. And I really do hope you coders out there consider yourself as such, not just as data processors. You, as a coder, it requires you to have critical thinking, right? You have to have a level of clinical knowledge and translate that knowledge into numeric codes, as we know, all while knowing how the insurance company interprets that information, right? How they will pay it, what they want to see, the standards in place. So as you listen to our experts today, I really want to encourage you to stop thinking in black and white and saying, this is what my book says, this is what the book says. And by book, we of course mean coding manuals, because guess what? Not all insurance companies go by what your book says 100% of the time. As we know, the insurance, they do pay the bill, not the publisher of those coding manuals. Think deeply about what we do and the value we offer to our physicians that we work with. Today, we're gonna to focus on two areas that we as advisors feel have been really misinterpreted, but at the very core are very simplistic concepts. So we're gonna look at these areas and see how we can improve in our understanding and really dig down to those definitions that have been in place since 2021. Some things have been revised this year, but at their core, these definitions have remained the same. Prescription drug management, and the focus is on the word management, and then, of course, the major versus minor surgery concept. These are both in the risk area, right? Because we are really trying to get down to improving our understanding of risk in this part of MDM. We're going to dig deep into those definitions, and hopefully you're going to see the connections and how a physician and your clinical teams, how they think, and how you can translate that into accurate payments. Compliance, right? You want to receive accurate payment that you don't get taken back and you want to make sure documentation matches up with the reimbursement. Staying compliant with those regulations. First, I want to sit down and chat with my friend Sanal. Uh, she's going to break down for us the true definition from the American Medical Association on prescription drug management. She's going to help us walk back the past to the present and how we can uncomplicate, as I mentioned, a very simple concept. So I think these new 
guidelines in 21 and the provisions in 23 really specifically address when a coder can choose that level of risk, right, in that third column in our MDM chart for the new guidelines, right? That's that third column for risk. And that's where prescription drug management falls in, right? It falls under that moderate category. So in the past, I know coders have simply checked the box, right, in our past 95 and 97, they just check the box because they see in documentation that the provider, um, you know, consolidated the prescription list or they provide a prescription list in the EMR, whatever. And they, they check that off as, okay, the doctor did some prescription drug management. But flash forward to today in 23, that's kind of a no, right? I would take that credit away, right? If it was 23, you can't just let a provider write those words that they're just consolidating, you know, the 15 different prescriptions in just a typed out form. There's no other information, right? It's just kind of a bean counting once again, that the patient is on these 15 different drugs. They didn't really do anything with it. It's just kind of copied, pasted forward in the EHR, right? So I myself as an auditor would prefer teaching and educating providers today that I want to see just a few more words um, involved in prescription drug management. And those few words would include that they initiated drug management, right? That they're continuing this prescription or they're discontinuing a prescription or they're modifying or tweaking a medication, right? And all of these types of medications require prescriptive authority. So those are all new words in the guidelines. So a medication list, like I said before, is simply not good enough anymore in 23, right? So, right, hypothetically, if the Dr. Smith is reviewing patient Anne's medication list to achieve a moderate level of risk, right, in our third column of MDM, you just need to add those few extra words that Dr. Smith started patient Anne on the lowest dose of Ambien of five megs, right? Just five megs. I'm just going to start her on that and see where it progresses. Is it going to work for her? Is it not going to work for her? Then in the next visit, she comes back, he has to tweak the medication, right? He wants to increase the dosage from five megs to 10. So it's as simple as that, including the actual management words, right? What is he or she doing to patient Anne for the prescription drug, right? He's starting her on the Ambien at five megs, and then he's going to modify that prescription in a subsequent visit to 10 megs. So I think it's as simple as that in 23 to be able to, you know, validate that we want to give the provider that credit for the moderate level of risk in that column number three for prescription drug management. Thank you, Sanal. And let's not forget about those real patients behind these records and how accurate documentation really helps them long after that face-to-face -face visit occurs. Now, Sanal, can you give us an example of this? If this Dr. Smith is prescribing this Ambien and another physician comes in and manages her for something else, we need to know what the drug she's on that may interact 
with that provider's treatment of patient Anne, right? So it's all a cycle and we need to have the full medical picture of each and every patient documented in the record. So they can all help each other out, right? Those are great examples. So, so great. And as we've had conversations with physicians in our education sessions, and also as we perform audits, all of us have been made aware of many misconceptions by physicians themselves. Um, many of them may be related to what they have been told, or maybe it's just as simple as being used to how we capture revenue in the past with the history and the exam components. And maybe MDM was maybe a, not as much of a thought because we were just counting bullets, trying to get the level as high as we can, right? But now when we look at this area, we can really think um, of how we can, in the essence of get a high level while sticking true to the documentation and making the documentation be our guide. Now, we understand that there are areas where we would like to improve documentation, but maybe sometimes documentation is already sufficient and maybe we as coders don't know how to interpret it. So we want to talk about some of these areas. And we do still see denials. And nowadays, they're getting a little bit different, maybe things that we're not used to. And I think when MDM became the focus, a lot of us got scared. We kind of drew back in our skin a little bit because we weren't as comfortable with that part of the process. Maybe we were so more comfortable, we were more comfortable with the history and the exam, right? Because we could just count the bullets up and it was maybe more simple for us. The MDM wasn't quite as clear and now it's all we're focusing on. So these insurance companies, they're looking at it too. And they're not looking at just, you know, the medical necessity, you know, the diagnosis matches, you know, the LCD policy, right? They're not looking at just that. They're making sure that what you order, what you do, um, in their documentation matches with clinical indicators. So you order this prescription, what in your note from the history all the way down justifies ordering that? What is this, the chain of events that started this process that necessitate having to order this, right? So it's a chain of events, it's the thought process that leads to those clinical indicators being validated. So that's what insurance companies are looking at now, believe it or not, they're getting denials because they're looking at these things. And so it's important that we understand those things as coders. And of course, those that work on the business side, so we can communicate that to our physicians, our clinical people, so they know that this is really truly affecting their revenue, uh, how it's affecting it. So I want to, of course, talk about further into this prescription drug management option and how the clinical indicators, if they're absent, how you can see the effect in your reimbursement. So let's check in with Terry as she's going to explain further to us this concept. I think the one thing that comes to mind is some of the missteps right now on telehealth that, that are reflective of what some providers think are prescription drug, and I'm air quoting management, versus refills. And that's the thing. A prescription refill is not management. A prescription list is not management especially if there's not a conversation or a discussion or something that has to um, go with the maybe a, a change in or modification or initiation or something that you have to manage the patient, not only with their prescriptions, but how it affects their conditions. And that's what we're not really seeing in the documentation. So here's what I try to to comment on when somebody asks me, what is justification for prescription drug management to assist in getting that one element of risk in a level four? So first of all, it would really be helpful if the documentation guidelines had provided a specific definition. 
But the MAX, the Medicare Administrative Contractors, actually have done a lot. And Noridian's pretty clear. They state prescription drug management is the initiation, continuation, discontinuation, or modification of any prescription medication. It does not include medications that are over the counter and prescriptions that are only prescribed for insurance benefits. So they were pretty clear it's not payer involved and it's not over the counter. Now, the over the counter. I would actually argue that point with with children only because I think there's some over-the-counter dangerous medications that you have to explain to parents why they can't take it. But again, that this is what Medicare is saying. Now, the other thing is keeping in mind that patient convenience and reimbursement rules never make these determinations. Another keyword is management. And I have my Webster's Dictionary out quite a bit because it helps to understand in what context that the management in healthcare is defined. And it says the coordination and administration of tasks to achieve a goal. So first of all, did it require prescriptive authority? And secondly, is that provider of record managing the prescription? So it has to be based on documented evidence that the physician not just listed the medications, but evaluate them as part of that service at that encounter today. And then did they make a direct connection between the medication that's prescribed and the work that was performed again on that clinic visit? So stable hypertension, including uh, continue Valsterdan, 10 milligrams will refill four months until next follow-up visit. If they just put that the patient was taking the hypertension medication, that's it. They, I don't give them credit. So simply stating that medication list was reviewed or, you know, continue meds, that doesn't meet the definition in, in, in my professional opinion. Agreed. And this is a question I get again, going back to orthopedics, because, you know, both of us live in that world sometimes. So it's it's the ibuprofen. It always comes back to me like I always get this question. <laughs> so based on those definitions, we know a, pro a provider can give an actual prescription. They have prescriptive authority, as you mentioned, to write them 800 milligrams, but they could go to Walmart and they could just take four 200 milligram tablets. But really to me it seems more logical they're going to document the need for them to give them that particular strength in one pill and what's the the risk benefits to them what is the the need for them to have it that way versus over the counter like how do we get to that conversation well and this is this is very uh, this is a really good point you're making so when a patient can go and purchase it themselves without any prescription advice or without any kind of physician um, prescription authority. So they can go buy, you know, dual, you know, amounts, then that means that it's almost like the um, PRN patient return is needed. Patients are now the ones in charge of their care, not the provider. When the doctor actually writes it, because as you said, they want it in one pill dosage. So for example, my husband has um, a little problem with tennis elbow, but he is a very avid golfer. So he has a, a prescription of the 800 milligram ibuprofen. And so I said, and I asked him the same question. I go, why don't you just take, you know, four Tylenol or four of your Advil? He goes, because I'd rather take it in one spot and because you don't know the additives of some of the over-counter medications. So remember also prescription drugs are also taken down to the basic level of what the actual drug is. It doesn't have, sometimes it doesn't have the coating and um, some of the manufactured additives that the basic prescription has. So that's why there has to be certain conversations, management with the physician when there's an RX written. And so that's where if you're turning the, the, the prescription or the 
advice for medication, whether it be over the counter or not, to the patient where they can just go pick it up, then there's no management there. The patient's in charge. 100%. So that, that's the conversation we have to have is, are you clear enough in your documentation to tell us why you're giving this patient prescription? Give us their comorbidities, give us their other conditions that you have to manage because they're on this because it can cause issues, you know, yeah. um, any medication you take enough of for a long period of time, chronically, you're going to have some potential side effects. So as long as those are laid out, I think I'm good with that. <laughs> Right. Well, and there's also toxicity issues. You know, you take too much Tylenol, for example. So I'm allergic to aspirin, so I can't take Advil or aspirin or anything like that, but I can take acetaminophen. So, but it, you know, if, if I have a pain or something, but there's side effects, if you take too much of that on your liver, well, that's why, you know, there has to be something higher than that, or there's a conversation about be careful from a prescription standpoint, that would be management because now they're looking at possible systemic um, problems with that. Thank you so much, Terry. We are seeing a trend, aren't we? Lack of consistency, follow through in documentation. And we always preach this to our providers, our physicians, that thought process, because that is what we can clearly see. Um, it really had, gives us a lot of juice, right? With the insurance company, it's how we can fight those denials that we can really see that we have an appealable claim here. We have an appealable proof here. We can submit appeal, even if they deny it flat out. We have backup to show them right here is where we have justification. We have met these criteria that you've laid out in your policy and we can actually fight back. And we need to be able to fight back. So we ask our physicians and our practices out there to help us give them that uh, ability to do so, right? And we're seeing an unprecedented amount of waste, aren't we, in duplicated services, resulting in what? More utilization reviews for services that really maybe never required them previously because we're not talking to each other. We're not having that communication. And so they don't know this happened. So then they're going to order this test, not realizing it had already been ordered. Now the insurance company wants to know why we have another one done when there's such a short amount of time, right? So those are the things we want to keep in mind. And I think understanding this area of MDM becomes crucial, not just to justify the level of service, because we know that's important, but also it helps increase the value of care that a patient receives. And I do love examples. So I love when my advisor, Christine Hall, gives me examples. So we're going to check in with Christine. She's going to break down um, some of the relational examples for us so we can paint a clearer picture. I'm really literal when it comes to the word management. I want to see the, the coordination and the supervision of that prescription drug. And I want to see that we're doing that to achieve the goal today. I want to see that if the patient takes their, if we, if we order this medication for the patient, we're expecting that that medication is going to bring them to goal. When we just say refills, continue meds, we're not, we're not managing that unless maybe we see labs that we're monitoring it. Or maybe if we see documentation that the medication is working, Eureka, where they're stable now because of the medication that they're taking on a regular basis. Uh, are they monitoring the patient for any possible side effects of that medication? Are they monitoring for adherence of that medication? Um, and that has nothing to do with toxicity reasons. I'm just saying that to show that management of the medication, well, how were we managing it?
right? What are we, what are we doing? What do we see? And also, if we don't continue that medication, will we see a regression? And all of that needs to be stated somehow in the medical record. Like I'm not asking for providers to, to, to change the way they document and start putting in paragraphs about writing prescriptions for the patient, but give me some sort of an indication that this medication has some value that you're managing for this patient. So those labs periodically, those, those, um, uh, the 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 side effects that could possibly happen that we're monitoring that we're increasing or decreasing or at least making that note that this medication is successful otherwise we could be refueling a medication that isn't even actually being used i mean lots of patients my mother for example she doesn't want to upset her doctor and so she continues to receive her prescriptions every month although she doesn't take those medications. And the provider's not managing anything because there's nowhere in the documentation that my mom has even said, oh yes, I'm taking them. There's an assumption that because she picks it up, she's taking it, but the question's never asked to support that management component, you know, and I used air quotes to say management component, not even a question that asks, are you still taking the medication? Are you taking it twice a day? Are you taking it with food? Um, how are you feeling on this new medication? I noticed your blood pressure was at goal today. And um, let's make sure we run a, a liver panel to make sure that this drug isn't affecting your liver. That to me is management. Such great stuff, Christine. Thank you. And thank you, ladies, for your insights, all of you. We're going to take a quick break now, and we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. Our sponsors over at OncoSpark created the Spark Advisory Network, backed by technology tools and services through their Code Interceptor program. This helps teams work smarter and not harder. Unpaid claims are wasting your time and costing your practice money. Most denials are due to coding and billing inaccuracies because staff may lack the proper education or are just spread way too thin. This is preventable with focused and uninterrupted verification. Our code interceptor experts will intercept your claims before they are submitted to ensure accuracy and completeness. This will reduce hours of working unnecessary denials and appeals while increasing timely payments you need to care for your patients. With current trends and staffing shortages, our team can create confidence and consistency. Contact OncoSpark today for a no-obligation consultation. Take back your revenue today. Visit www.oncospark.com. Now, that other area that we mentioned we need to call attention to is very important to me personally. It's an area that I focus on in my role as a consultant in the surgery world. I work with a lot of surgeons in, in my field. And I love working with surgeons. I love what they do. It's fascinating to me. Now, not that I don't love other areas, other service lines, but I just, I just found my niche in surgery. So that's what I love. It's my passion. So when I see there's confusion out there with certain elements, I really love to dig deep and help others understand how to maneuver the world of surgical practices when it comes to evaluation and management. One of the areas that created a lot of confusion and they had to revise was the lack of understanding and how to separate clinical documentation 
requirements, terms that we see in clinical documentation from the reimbursement side when it comes to the major versus minor surgery. Think about this, and we're gonna hear from our advisors on this. The clinical definition is what physicians focus on. They're not gonna be thinking about the global package and how Medicare, CMS, defines a major versus minor surgery. So the AMA did a really good job, I personally feel, even though it was confusing to some people, I felt it was a good explanation to make, get it back to the purpose, right? Physicians who are part you know, of a practice, they're not thinking about when they're seeing a patient um, documenting this is a minor or major surgery because they're trying to think of 90 days versus 10 days or zero days. That's not what they're focusing on. They're thinking about what's the risk to my patient? What do they have, right? What condition or multiple conditions? What data did I review that will necessitate me ordering this procedure? How do I explain to my patient how much they need this service and how it's going to help them? Those are the things that they're thinking about, right? And so we should also be thinking about what their thought process is so we can help them bridge that gap between what the documentation says and how we can get those things, you know, abstracted to a level that would be reimbursable. And we still have new coders, you know, coming in that are taught to think so literal and they really need to be trained to develop, like I mentioned, those critical thinking skills to learn how to interpret a clinical statement into guidelines uh, that are used to receive payment. It's not a secret. We all know that the American Medical Association and CMS, they disagree on several things, which shouldn't surprise us because again, we're dealing with clinical versus maybe an insurance company, right? They're not gonna think exactly the same. The terms that CMS uses, of course, are based on their global package rules, not based on clinical terms. So we have to get deeper and understand what clinically a major or minor surgery means because that's what we're abstracting for an evaluation management level right the surgical package has to do with a surgical procedure right they assign global days to a surgical procedure right and that's where enm comes in where we know that if you add an enm service at the same time as a surgical package procedure that's when you need a modifier, right? But they're a separate concept. So we need to separate E&M from surgical package procedures because you have an E&M and then you have a procedure. You have an E&M and you have a procedure. Hope that's clear. Keep those things separate so we can not confuse ourselves here. Let's though now get a baseline definition and dig to back to the root of the definition. We're going to talk to Sanal Patel, one of our advisors. She's going to give us a little more insight into this definition. The AMA via CPT definitely um, confused the coding professionals, right? Um, in the sense that we're all used to CMS um, identifying major and minor surgeries with a global package, right? But the AMA is like, what? We don't mean that. We mean major surgery in the most common common sense of the word, right? And the most common sense of the word minor. So Definitely not. Physicians, I've never, ever in my career seen a piece of documentation that says um, I'm performing a major surgery or I'm performing a minor surgery in seven days. No, I've never seen a piece of documentation that, you know, a, an, an actual surgeon says those words. No, those are terminologies that are developed by the other people, right? at CMS and at the AMA. So no, I've never seen that before. And I don't think our physicians are required to document such terms. So 
when we look at these guidelines, again, we have to take the time to read this green text, whether the green text was in 21 or whether the green text is in 23. It doesn't matter. Um, we have to become very familiar with these actual definitions. So what they mean by just the general term, right, is surgery, minor or major. It's the classification of surgery into minor or major is based on the common meaning of such terms when used by trained clinicians. And it's similar to the use of the term risk. Okay. So what that means is that when there's a surgery that's minor, there's going to be minor complications that may arise. That's what a physician is thinking. It's a minor complicated surgery. They're not expecting too much bad, too much to go sideways in a minor surgery, right? But it's the opposite in a major surgery. There's a whole lot of mayhem that can happen to a patient for a major type of a surgery, right? It could lead to death. We don't have that, um, you know, inherent meaning, implicit meaning when a surgery is minor. So, the AMA definitely does not look at these terms um, according to CMS, which is they look at things according to the surgical package, right? So minor surgery to CMS is for a global period of zero to 10 days versus a major surgery to CMS is a surgery that has a global period of 90 days, okay? But I do think the onus, of course, is on the education and familiarity of terminology for a auditor and for a coder, right? So when you're looking at that column of risk, again, these surgeries fall into that third column in our MDM chart. They fall into that risk column, column number three. Um, so we need to understand the risk of patient management, right? And we need to be able to discern if there was a decision made or a consideration made to a minor procedure with patient risk factors or procedure risk factors that were clearly documented, right? So that's the case. You can definitely support that this patient has a moderate level of risk. So you could definitely allow that credit to be given if those things were well documented for the minor procedure, right? Just as if there was a decision made or a consideration made by the provider to a major procedure without any patient or procedure risk factors being addressed and therefore not documented. So that too, we could give credit to and score at the moderate level, okay? That would definitely qualify there. But then when we move on and we're trying to look at the documentation and address, is there a situation that we could go ahead and give the provider credit for a high level of risk, right? High level. So that's that next one that's greater. And that's going to involve the thought process, right, from the surgeon that there may be functional impairment or organ damage is going to occur from those management options, right? Or the treatment plan of surgery, right? That major surgery. There might be severe functional impairment because I'm going to operate, right? So that type of thought process has to be documented if they're going to proceed with that surgery or if they're simply considering that surgery that has to be documented, right? 
And then if that physician does decide to go ahead with the surgery pretty immediately, right, and without a delay, we can definitely go ahead and give them credit for that high level of risk. But the main takeaway I want for your audience is that it's that thought process, right, that has been the golden ticket for 23. Um, you know, we in this space have always tried to teach our providers to get their thoughts down on paper, right? It's that thought process that we need to see better documented because in 23, you know, even AMA, CMS has agreed that it is that thought process, that overall MDM of the physician or the provider, that's gold. That's the golden ticket. So I think um, that's really important for us to remember that the documentation in 23 and beyond needs to be better focused, especially on this last column of risk of complications to the patient. We have to change our way of thinking. That's a big change in our mindset that it's no longer the treatment plan stuff that we used to think about in 95 and 97, but we're really taking on that third column as a risk of complications to the patient. Thanks so much, Sanal, for that breakdown. I think it becomes so important to understand the definitions at their intent, right? Take them for what they really mean, but also think about the fact every patient's going to be different. So one patient may have a minor surgery, um, for them, it's minor because you combine the what their condition is, how healthy they are with what's being performed and how it's being performed versus another patient, right, that has multiple comorbidities and it's going to be more of a major surgery for them, right, than somebody else. So looking at what's true for that patient, right, looking at the risk to that patient that day, what about that patient specifically identifies the risk. And we know that just because the patient may not take that procedure on doesn't mean the provider doesn't get credit for identifying that risk for that patient, right? Let's dig a little deeper and let's listen in as Terry Fletcher elaborates on this for us. I get a lot of providers, especially with major surgeries that complete, that want to go to immediately to a level five visit when they're doing gallbladder, when they're doing um, hernia repairs and they're like, well, that's a, a major surgery. Well, as we know, you and I both saw that in 2021, they said, you know, even minor procedures could be considered major bent depending on the risk to that particular patient. So if you're going to have a hernia repair for a patient that is otherwise healthy, that's, that's going to be moderate potentially. Um, but if you're going to have the same, let's say hernia repair to um, a patient who is 80, plus they are a Coumadin patient, plus they also have a COPD and some issues there. So there's going to be a problem or a risk with the uh, potential anesthesia. Now you've got a, a you know, a, possibly a higher level service. So it's about that patient, not the generalities of a routine service. And, and that's really what everybody has to keep in mind when they're using medical decision-making to level a visit, whether it be complicated, uncomplicated, whether, you know, you're looking at prescription drug management versus toxicity or uh, issues with, with that patient's, that patient's medication. You have to look at that patient's profile and tell that story, not the general story for everyone that it could do this. I have an urgent care that constantly puts in their medical decision-making as number two. Uh, ER precautions given to the patient if this happens. Well, and then I look at the age of the patient and I look at the situation. Patients, you know, 22 years old, and it's unlikely that the patient's going to need to go to the ER. So saying that doesn't necessarily make it a level five as they're trying to get. 
Those are such great insights, Terry. Thank you so much. And as all of us know, those of us who have done many audits and had conversations we've had with many physicians, it becomes apparent that we see a, a common goal, right? We're wanting to get to that level five. And that is the basis for many of the questions that they ask us. But it becomes so important to have these pointed conversations with our physicians and remind uh, them, remind you physicians out there that we know your focus is on your patient and that's where it should be, right? So what we're encouraging you is to let the documentation lead you, right, to that correct level of service because whatever happens to that patient, it's going to be what it is, right? That patient's condition will lead you to data you need to review versus also, and then that data is going to lead you to maybe a, a service that you're going to perform or some kind of risk you're going to identify for that patient. And that's going to lead to the proper reimbursement based on the documentation. And you'll receive the accurate payment, you'll be compliant with regulations, and you can keep that hard-earned money. So we want to make sure that we're having these conversations with our physicians and physicians are understanding the conversations we're having, what we're trying to accomplish here. Let's now check in with our advisor, Christine Hall. She's going to help us with some examples to really tie all of this together for us. Whether it's a major surgery or minor surgery is at the provider's discretion. And no, they're never going to say this is a major surgery or a minor surgery. However, they are going to um, they're going to indicate to you that for this patient, this surgery is going to be a little more tricky or a little more intensive because, and they give you the following reasons why, um, maybe it's age, maybe it is, uh, comorbidities that the patient has that make that risk factor present or not present. And even if it's not the risk factor for this particular patient, this is going to be a little trickier. I'll give you an example. So the patient that needed to have a joint injection in their spine, it was a nerve block injection in their spine, but they have Parkinson's. And so they have tremors, especially when they get nervous, who doesn't get nervous when they're putting a needle in your back. And so that for that patient was more of a major surgery than a minor surgery in the provider's eyes, because now we have to think about how do we perform this surgery? Nothing to do with 10-day global period, 90-day global period. That's a payment thing. We're talking about risk to the patient. That risk could make what we would think a minor procedure is be considered more major because of that patient and their unique circumstances there. Thank you so much, Christine, for that great example and for all of your insights. And of course, I want to thank all of our advisors today for continuing to highlight the need for coders and auditors to keep improving in their critical thinking skills and also how we can improve in our communication with our providers or physicians working together to build that accurate documentation. It should make sense to us that a clinically trained physician will not be required to say, I am doing major surgery or I am doing minor surgery. And if they did that, it wouldn't automatically translate to a global package definition anyway, right? So we have to understand that. As it was mentioned earlier uh, by Terry, I use this example a lot too in my personal education with physicians and coders. I use the example of an arthroscopic procedure, for instance, because most of them have a 90-day global package attached to them by CMS. Um, but 
just because they considered a major surgery by a CMS to a physician, the nature of that procedure or the condition of the patient, how they perform it, uh, the non-invasiveness of it may not equate to a major surgery to a physician, may be considered more of a minor procedure, right? So they're not going to use the same terms that other organizations use. Our job as professionals is to translate those clinical terms, right, into reimbursable codes. And we're talking about E&M right now. We're not talking about procedure codes. We're talking about taking that data, that documentation from the E&M level or from that visit note that they're going to order this procedure, does it equate to a procedure that they consider minor or major? That's what we have to understand. We hope these clarifications will aid all of our listeners uh, to keep improving and asking those important questions. We encourage you, do not stop asking questions. When we stop asking questions, we stop learning. And then our physician practices suffer because of that. To all of our listeners out there, we hope you will stay with us for our final part of this three-part series still to come. We're going to bring you back to the documentation standards. We want to dissect documentation standards, dissect the guidelines, and bring it all together and unravel this E&M service line. We once again want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for their support. You can further support this initiative by OncoSpark and the Spark Advisory Network by attending one of our upcoming virtual events that will break down evaluation management services for our specialty practices. In 2023, we are providing all-day events for pain management, general surgery, ophthalmology, and orthopedics. Visit sparkadvice.com to learn more and not only get the education and training you need, but also those all-important CEUs so that our coders and auditors out there can keep their hard-earned credentials. We have training for billing and admin staff as well. Tomorrow is our RevCycle Symposium, Thursday, February 23rd, and it's not too late to grab a seat. This is an all-day event that will walk you through the front-end processes of collecting benefits and eligibility, all the way to the appeal processes. Do you know how to make your EMR work for you? Do you know how to mitigate denials by improving processes that could even prevent denials from occurring in the first place? We know that many denials are preventable. Actually, 80 to 90% of them are preventable. We will have a live workshop where attendees will learn how to interpret various denials and appeals. It is also available on demand all year. You can earn CEUs. We have eight CEUs for our attendees. And of course, a portion of the proceeds do go uh, to cancer research as part of Cancer Prevention Month. Join us. And remember, knowledge is power. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. Thank you to our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fass with Highland Productions, and to all of our listeners. Until next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Healthcare Crossroads. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. Thank you to our sponsors at OncoSpark. OncoSpark is a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. They help you effectively manage claims data with technology solutions. Check out their website to learn more at www.oncospark.com. Thank you, OncoSpark.